something that can be a fun and interesting exercise is to sit down and imagine the Christmas story. The angels coming and speaking to Mary and to Joseph, the journey to Bethlehem, the birth of Jesus, the shepherds on the hill, the angels, all those different parts of the story of the birth of Jesus. And to write those down, maybe make some mental notes to yourself, and then go and read what the Bible has to say about it. So if you wanted to go to the Bible to find it, you'd have to go to the Gospels, the four stories of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But what you would discover as you looked in those four Gospels is really only two of them, Matthew and Luke, tell the story that we think of as Christmas. So the first two chapters of Matthew and the first two chapters of Luke. So go ahead and try that sometime. Write down the Christmas story and then go and compare that. I know when I do it, when I think about the Christmas story and I go back and read, I realize that over the years, through watching programs at church, through watching movies on television, through reading storybooks, that there's lots of different elements of the story that I've kind of added on and sort of made part of the story that aren't there. Like, for example, the assumption or the picture that we often have of Mary sitting on a donkey, journeying to Bethlehem. It never mentions there's a donkey. Now, there's a good chance there was one, but nothing ever says there was. And so there are these little elements of the story, and one of those we'll see in today's story that we're going to read. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. And where we get some of our ideas sometimes are from songs, the songs of Christmas. And so one of the songs of Christmas that often gets sung is the song, We Three Kings of Orientar. Well, the song is based on, in part, the story we found, we find in Matthew chapter 2. But as we read that story, we're going to see something about that. So let's begin by reading that story together. Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So one of the things you might have noticed in the story is it never says that these travelers were kings. It says, describes them simply as magi. Some translations say wise men. We're not exactly sure what it means. But basically astrologers coming from the east, perhaps from Babylon, maybe somewhere in Persia, coming to journey. And it also never says there are three. Now, it does talk about three gifts, certainly, 
But it could have been two people brought three gifts. It could have been five of them or a dozen, and they brought three gifts. And we're not really sure. But in some sense, that's all not really important, whether there were three or five or seven, or whether they were kings or simply magi. But as I was thinking about that and this idea of the we three kings, that sometimes we get caught up in this story. We think, oh, there's these three kings. And we fail to notice that the story really isn't about these three magi. See, I did it myself there, these three. It isn't about these magi. It isn't about these wise men, these travelers, these astrologers. The story is about two kings, King Herod and the one who was born king, King Jesus. And so I want us to take a look at the story and think about those two kings and contrast them a little bit and see what we might learn a little bit more about who God is and why Jesus came. So first, let's consider King Herod. So King Herod ruled on behalf of the Roman Empire over the area of Palestine, where the Jewish people lived, where God's people lived. And King Herod, by all accounts, was a tyrant. He often, one of the things that he was best known for, if that's the right way to describe it, was his tendency to violence, to kill people to maintain his own power, power in many different ways. One way he did that was he had a way of um, viewing his wife as a possession of his. He had, now, he had 10 wives, actually, but his favorite wife he had a particular attachment to. And so on several occasions when he went on long journeys, he would leave an order that if for some reason something happened to him and he didn't return from this journey, that this wife was to be killed because he couldn't imagine someone else being married to her. And so he was so, so possessive, so jealous, so much of seeing himself as power and, and, and possessing her that he could see no one else and wanted to have her killed. He also was willing to kill to maintain his own power. That included murdering three of his own sons, one of his uncles, and his mother-in-law because he saw them in some way as a threat. He also used death as a way to not only to maintain power, but to maintain power over the populace, often purging the population, threatening violence in order to maintain control. And even as he was preparing for his own death, as he was sick and dying, he knew that many people would be celebrating on his death because he was such a tyrant. And so he didn't want celebration on his death. He wanted mourning and lamenting. He wanted the people across the nation, across his kingdom to be weeping at his death. So he had arranged a number of Jewish leaders all around Palestine to be put in prison. And then upon his death, that they would all be executed so that the people of Palestine would be weeping and mourning because so many people had died. And they would then associate this mourning and weeping with the death of Herod. Well, fortunately for the people of Palestine, when Herod died, these orders weren't carried out. But you can begin to get a picture of the kind of person, the kind of king, that Herod was, and how much violence was a part of his life, and the way he used violence to control and to try and maintain control of his power. Now, we contrast that with Jesus. And now, there are many different ways we could contrast the way of Herod and the way of Jesus, and that's just one of them. 
But in particular, we think about, I want to think about this issue of violence and control because Jesus came in humility. He came not with swords, but he came as a child. And through his life, and even as we read the Gospel of Matthew, just a few chapters later when he begins his teaching, in what we know as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's chapter 5 through 7, he teaches a way of peace, a way of turning the other cheek. And then when he comes to the end of his life, he offers himself on a cross. He doesn't conquer with a sword, but his chariot, his vehicle of conquest, is his own death on a cross. And so there's these contrasts between these two that goes on, between the way of violence, the way of power through violence, and the way of Jesus, which is the giving up of power, the giving over, the surrender, the way of Jesus, the way of peace that Jesus shows. And we see some of this violence continued in the story of Herod here as we continue on in Matthew chapter 2, now beginning at verse 13. When they had gone, that is, the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And so this part of the Christmas story is one of the most horrible, one of the darkest. It's not one that often appears on Christmas cards, but it does appear sometimes in Christmas stories. My family just the other night watched The Nativity Story, a movie from 2006, which is just a wonderful portrayal of Mary and Joseph and the announcement to them by the angels and then their journey to Bethlehem. And again, even in that movie, I was watching a few times saying, well, wait, it never says that in the Bible. But that's not the point. One of the great things about the movie is its portrayal of Herod. So I would encourage you to watch this and see who Herod was. But the movie opens with this scene that's described here in Matthew chapter 2. And then goes back and it opens with this scene of the soldiers crashing down the doors in the city of Bethlehem and slaughtering the children there. Another great portrayal of this and I even hesitate to use the word great portrayal, but maybe powerful portrayal of this scene is the painting by the French painter Leon Cagnier, who painted in 1824 the, the scene of the massacre of the innocents. And this painting is a powerful portrait, and it highlights one woman hiding behind a corner, clutching her child. And you get a sense from looking at her face in this picture of the horror of what's going on here. And so we see this story here in Matthew. We have to ask, what's going on here? Why does Matthew tell us this story? What is he drawing out for us? What is he calling our attention to with this story of the horror of this man, Herod, 
who is so obsessed with power, so in fear of losing his power, that he would order soldiers to go and to kill little boys. And so in the story, one of the things we see is what Matthew is doing in part is reminding us of this is the way of tyrants, that tyrants and empires often cling to power through force, that they use violence to maintain that power. And one of the ways Matthew does is it connects it to other stories in the Bible. One of the stories it clearly connects to is the story of the people of God of Israel in the book of Exodus. And there are a lot of connections, a lot of hyperlinks back to that story. If you remember, the people of God are in slavery in Egypt, and the Pharaoh of Egypt is concerned that the people are growing to be too strong, that they will rise up in rebellion against them. And so what he does is he orders the killing of all the young boys that are born. And in the midst of that, one young boy, who later grows to be Moses, is saved out of this because of what the actions of his mother and his, his older sister. So Moses is saved out of this and then becomes the one who helps to rescue Egypt. And so we can see a parallel here with Jesus, that Jesus is a greater Moses, that Jesus is saved from this slaughter of all the other young boys and then returns and redeems or rescues God's people. We even see the connection with the nation of Egypt in this way that God reverses things, that Egypt, who has been the enemy of God's people, now becomes the source of refuge for God and His rescuer. And the irony that Egypt, the place that had often been the enemy of Israel, been the enemy of God's people, becomes the place where God's Son goes to be in safety until after the death of Herod. And so we see in this story the way that God turns things around, the way that God uses these things. But one of the things in particular that I want to call attention to, just two things I want to highlight in this story beyond that, is the fact that God's plan will not be stopped by the forces of evil. Here we see the forces of evil at work, where Herod is slaughtering these young children in a way to maintain his own power. And by forces of evil, it can be human forces, it can be supernatural forces, working against God's plan. But here, God's plan will not be thwarted. And it's a reminder to us that no matter what is brought against God's plan, that no matter what actions are taken to try and set aside God's plan to redeem and to restore the world, to set all things right, to bring back the shalom, the way things are supposed to be in the world, that nothing can stop that, that the rulers and powers of the world can throw all their efforts against it, but nothing can stop it. The second thing is it's a reminder that this is the world that Jesus came into, a world where rulers and tyrants try and maintain their power through the use of power and the use of force and the use of violence. It wasn't just Herod, it was Pharaoh thousands of years earlier killing the innocent children of Israel. But it's rulers in today's world. It's 
the ruler of North Korea, who killed his own brother-in-law, or his own half-brother. It's powers and empires down through the ages. And any review of history will see this, where kings, where emperors, where dictators used violence as a means to control power. When any sort of sedition, when any sort of rebellion, when any sort of opposition rose up, the most, there were two solutions often, to try and co-opt them, to buy them out, or to simply kill them. And so we see in the story a reminder that that's the world that Jesus comes into. It's a world that we still live in today. It's a world that we live in where too often violence is the solution. Where people, again, kings, rulers, dictators, try and maintain power through violence and through oppression. And we see this used far too often. And as a reminder that this is one of the reasons that Jesus came into the world, to put an end to this violence. And so maybe one of the questions we want to ask ourselves in this Christmas season is how do we view the use of violence? Do we see that as the solution to our problems? Do we too often look and say, oh, the way to solve this, the way to make things better is to send in the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines. The solution to our problems what we see in so many of the movies, the books that we read, is to say violence is the solution. And instead what we see in the Bible is God offering a different way. And God's saying, I'm sending Jesus because violence is not the way the world is supposed to operate. This is the way of terror. This is the way of the empire. And so Jesus has come into the world to make a difference in that, to make a change to that, to bring about a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of righteousness. And so this story is a story of two kings, a contrast of two ways of doing things, the way of Herod and the way of Jesus. And it invites us to consider which way will we pursue? Will we pursue the way of Herod or will we pursue the way of Jesus? And what Matthew is doing as he tells us this story of Christmas is to see the way that God has showed us, to invite us into the way of peace, to invite us into the way of Jesus, to recognize that Jesus came into the world, not with a sword, but to bring peace. One of my favorite Christmas carols is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It's just a wonderful marvelous song that has some great theology in it and a great picture of who Jesus is. And the last verse says, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings, risen with healing in His wings. Mild He lays His glory by, born that we no more may die, born to raise each child of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. It's a great picture because it reminds us, reminds us of who Jesus is, that he comes to bring light and life, that he is the one who dies and then rises. And the image of rising is a picture not only of 
him rising from the dead, but a picture of the sun rising and bringing light and life. And so it's a marvelous picture, a reminder that Jesus came into a dark world, but he came to bring light and life. That King Jesus comes to bring peace. That he is the sun of righteousness, the one who shines light. So may we sing praise to King Jesus this day, the one who is the Prince of Peace, the one who comes to bring light and life to all. Let's hail the newborn King. Amen.